0: What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's
1: tablet. I like
0: reading plain old regular books with lots of detail.
2: This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our
0: host, Rachel Wada. Let's talk tone. As a professor of children's literature, I often find in my classes it's good to break down the elements of literature and talk about how they work in the context of judging the quality of a book. While there are many elements that structure literature, one I find to be very significant is tone. Tone is defined as the attitude of a writer towards their subject and audience. Literature often has a theme, which is the major issue or idea the author is addressing. The way the author approaches that theme is the tone. Tone can be described in a variety of ways. It can be formal or informal, humorous or serious, sarcastic or thoughtful, happy or sad. When an author writes, it is important that the tone of the work is suited to both the audience and the theme. Take, for example, an author writing to preschoolers who uses a very formal or academic tone to talk about colors. This would certainly not be the best tone for that audience. Another example would be an author who takes a very humorous tone to talk about the death of a child's beloved pet hamster. That tone would certainly be inappropriate for that theme. So while authors can use tone in poor ways, it can also be used in amazing ways. One of my favorite authors who uses a humorous tone in his books to perfection is Bob Shea. His picture book with illustrator Lane Smith, Kid Sheriff and the Terrible Toads, is a great example of how the use of misdirection, figurative language and dialect can create a humorous tone. In picture books, illustrations can also impact tone. Think of Chris Van Allsburg's classic Polar Express. Its dark, intense illustrations give it a thoughtful, mysterious tone. What if the pictures had been all bright and bold? What a different book that would have been. So next time you read a book with the children in your life, take a look at tone and think about why the author chose to convey the feelings they did, and you just might see a different side to an old favorite. And that's a little tip for looking at books from here at Rachel's World.
2: What makes a book great? John Austinson, an English professor at BYU, considers this question today with Rachel on World's Awaiting. What if the answer isn't merely a matter of personal taste? Austinson specializes in literature for teens and young adults. He suggests that we make the effort as adults to read a little more widely so we can better understand what our teens are reading. Having taught junior high and high school English in Utah, he presently teaches courses in adolescent literature and publishes on the topic. Here's Rachel and John.
0: We've got John in studio today. Welcome, John. Thank you. Okay, here's the $24,000 question for today. (laughs) At least. At least $24,000. You know, a lot of people always come to me and they say, oh, what's a good book? And I think, okay, the first off, you have to define what is a good book. So, Define it for us, John. What is a good book? <laughs>
1: um, when I get asked this question, I this movie plays in my head. Uh, it's Dead Poets Society, and it's the scene where the um, the young boys are reading this introductory chapter to their poetry anthology, and it's all about what makes a poem great. And he's got this like this metric. It's importance on the x-axis, and it's quality on the y-axis, or something. And it's it's like this exercise in mathematics and then of course Robin Williams who plays John Keating says rip that chapter out, wad it up, throw it away and he passes around a wastebasket. And I just think at, at the end he says poetry, we read poetry because it makes us feel, it makes us human and so my easy answer to that question Rachel is a good book makes me feel, it moves me. When I turn that last page I, I have this sort of bittersweet feeling. I'm like, oh, it's over. I'm so sad that it's over. But by the on, on the other hand, I, I just feel enriched because I've read it and I'm moved at reading it. Now, that said, when it comes to young adult literature, I can maybe give a couple more objective metrics. How's Let's that? Let's do that. Okay. <laughs> I think that good young adult literature is written by people who take young adults seriously. It's easy for us as adults to look at these teenagers with their problems and their worries and sort of diminish those and say, oh, none of that's going to matter in 20 years. Or, you know, speaking from our perch as adults, good young adult literature doesn't do that. It takes these, these young people and their challenges seriously. But at the same time, it connects those to universal concerns. Your fear about fitting in in eighth grade is my fear about fitting in in a new job or fitting in in a new neighborhood or something like that. It recognizes that while the context might be different, there are universal concerns at work here. I also think that good young adult literature tells a great story. Um, Anne Rinaldi, who wrote a lot of historical fiction, was asked once about uh, why kids liked her books, and she said – First of all, I tell them a good story, and I think story is so important for us as human beings. We're told stories from probably our earliest memories. We can remember hearing stories, and they have such power. So the best young adult literature tells a story that I can escape into with characters that I love, that I care about, and that deals with things that matter to me. So... There's there's my shot at at what a good book is.
0: I love that, and the, this sense of it matters to the reader. I think is really important to this, because a good book is really contextual. I I okay. think it's I think it's really hard. I think from a literary standpoint, as literary scholars, we could say this is what makes a book good from the literary standpoint. Right. But even then, we don't always agree. <laughs> And the reality is, but then when you move to the reader perspective, what makes it good is what the reader brings to it. Yes. So how do we balance this kind of sense of every book is going to have a different reader and that is going to make the definition of good different?
1: Yeah. You know, I think we worry too much as adults sometimes about things that – maybe in in hindsight or in retrospect don 't maybe matter as much and i, I don't don 't mean to suggest this question doesn 't matter I think it 's a very very important question but it 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 I think about um, an experience I had the last year I was teaching high school uh, Twilight had just come out the novel Twilight had just come out, and I read it the summer before because it was all the rage, and I thought. And I had my response, which was, the beginning and the end is pretty good, but I got a little weary during the middle. I love the action part. Well, I, I did a book talk early in the year on that book. And Rachel, that book never spent more than a day on my desk before another student checked it out. Um, and in fact, I had a student that year who was a non-reader who turned into a reader thanks to Stephanie Meyer and Twilight. And she asked me three times to check out that book. And each time apologized, and I said, "You have nothing to apologize for if, they, if you love this book, then read it, and read it as many times as you want." So um I think if if the reader feels moved by the book, if the reader feels drawn into that book, then that's that's fine. That's their judgment, and that's okay. And I think sometimes we worry a little too much about, "Oh, all my son reads is science fiction, you know, or all my daughter wants to read is paranormal romance, and you know. We all go through our phases as readers. We all find what we need. But the but the main thing is to make sure that we're finding what we need in those books.
0: I think that is one of the most important things. And I, when I work with my students, one of the things I try to teach them is this fact of you may not personally respond to it, but that doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to respond to it. So I, how do we take that step back and be a little more critical about what we're reading in order to open our eyes to the breadth of experiences teens might need.
1: You know I th- I think one thing we need to do is we probably need to read a little more widely ourselves and maybe that's maybe that's easy advice for me to give you or me who, you know, this is part of our career and our profession, right, to read widely but but um I, I think if, if we read outside our comfort zones, then first of all, that might give us a little better experience. It might surprise us as to what we find, and it might help us provide the suggestions that maybe young readers need. I think, again, it comes back a little bit to trust, trusting these readers. It's We're, we're in a tricky spot as adults, both in recommending books and in writing books and marketing books to young people. Because there's a power differential there, and we have to be careful. We have to trust and respect these young people that they can make choices about what they read. And that's why we really have to value every individual's response and not not seek a right response, right? a, a quote-unquote right or proper response. Everyone's entitled to respond in their own way to what they read or what they see. You know, and this is true I think of any art form.
0: So how do we then as adults though look at that and embrace that sense of there's really no right response and I'm willing to listen to your response and try to at least understand where you're coming from.
1: Um I think I think we have to set out with that as our goal. I mean I don't know that there's any there's any neat trick to it. I do think reading what our kids read is really great. I think it's very very important and, and when I taught the junior high and the high school, uh, I encouraged parents to read the books, even some of the books that were a little edgy and and I thought, "Hmm, there may be some things in here they don't like." But I wanted them to read because I hoped they would have a conversation with their with their son or daughter about what we read. And engaging our 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 children, our students, the the young people that we're working with engaging in conversations, I think, that start with what did you think of that book instead of maybe, well, hey, here's what I thought. If we start with our response first, it's almost as if we've kind of maybe poisoned the pot a little bit and and it might make the other person feel a little hesitant, but to say, hey, what did you think and to be eager to hear that and then – to sort of steal ourselves inside, hey, if it's not exactly what I liked or how I felt, that's going to be okay. I don't think there's anything easy about that. But but the more we do it, the more we engage in conversation, I think the more the people around us see that we're honest about wanting to hear their response.
0: And I think that's one of the most important things with all of this, because it really is about a conversation and it really is about developing relationships. So I think often people, particularly when working with teens, they look at it as reading as kind of this isolated thing, that they're going to read and be impacted by this all alone right. in their little own sphere. But the reality it's not. Reading, particularly for teens is hugely social. It's more social than we give it credit for. I mean, and Twilight hit the world big because of the social nature of teens and reading.
1: I agree. And I think this is something that actually I think young adult authors encourage. So many of them are active on Twitter and Instagram and other social media platforms. Some of it, we could be cynical and say, well, that's a marketing ploy. And some of it probably is. But as I've gotten to know more and more young adult authors, I am so impressed with how much they care about their audience and how much they love feedback and how much they love talking to those, those readers, doing school visits, tweeting with them and things like that. And, and I love that aspect because one of the first things I want to do when I read a great book is share it with somebody else and talk to somebody else about it. And I think social media and these young, these young adult writers' willingness to engage there is helping build a world that's even more social around reading. Yeah. So I, I second what you say there. I think it's so critical.
0: And I think that goes back to this definition of what is a good book. For me, ah, it's a yeah. great idea of if you – when you finish a book, if you just have to go and say, <laughs> I've read this great book, yeah. that to me is fundamental to my definition of what is good, particularly for me as a reader. If I feel like I, like I need that. to share it, then there's that sense of, yes, this, this was this a great moved book. me and it yeah. was great. And yeah. I just have to share it with other people. So I think that that connects with that sense of of teens and the social nature of their reading. Right. Very fundamentally as well. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, John, for You're visiting very today. welcome. Thank you. That
2: was Rachel Wadham with John Austinson, professor of adolescent literature, sharing his wisdom about finding good books for teens. You're listening to World's Awaiting. Next, Rachel talks to Linda Palma of the BYU Museum of Art. Our topic is the importance of art in a child's life and how it can help them broaden their horizons. Palma has enjoyed a long and rewarding career in museum studies, beginning as a registrar of the BYU Art Collection, then as collections manager and now as an educator at the BYU Museum of Art. Linda also spent several years teaching in the Music and Humanities Department at BYU.
0: Here's Rachel with Linda. We have Linda in studio today. Welcome, Linda. Thank you for having me. I am so glad to kind of pick your brain and get some of your experience here. You have such a vast experience, particularly with art and great works of art and, and museums. And I know that sometimes, um, you know, we have... We have these conversations in school where the arts are getting cut out, and, and we just don't have this sense of why art is important. And I think particularly for children, there's some really strong reasons why art is an important part of their literacy development, and engaging with these kinds of things is is significant to that. So speak to that from your perspective. Why do you think engaging children with art is something really important? You know, I think we have about 15
3: minutes. I'd need probably at least a day and a half. There we go. (laughs) I love these big questions. To be be able to really tell you how I feel about this. My listeners know
0: I I love the big, unanswerable questions on this show.
3: (laughs) But it it is answerable. And actually, there are many answers to that. For example, most collections in museums emphasize either indigenous cultures or some other cultures. Oh, what? How great an exhibition is for helping children to understand other cultures we 've had, for example um, uh, uh, crossing the bridges with the arts of Islamic culture and Oh, my heavens, we had school groups coming in that absolutely loved learning about another culture or the Hindu exhibition that we had last year, Loving Devotion. What what a fantastic opportunity to learn about different cultures and different peoples and the way they worship and, and developing this kind of sensitivity to other people and their beliefs. Also, the arts stimulate that, that desire for exploration, that curiosity that is an inherent part of hopefully not only children, but adults as well, of families as they come into the museum. It's an exploration of discovery. It's an opportunity to see something they haven't before, to experience something, to th- take that quiet point in their day where everything else is shoved aside, all the hustle and bustle, and they look at a work of art and and they invest themselves into it, and they analyze, and they evaluate, and they create a narrative about it. That's always fun to do with children. Create a story about that piece. Anything that pulls that child into that work of art, peeling back the layers of meaning. And children love to do that. Also, Art helps us think outside of the box. Now, thinking in the box is not such a bad thing. In some instances, there are boxes to be had in life, but there are also many others that we want to step out of and see outside of. We, we come to learn through art that we don't necessarily think about things the same way someone else does so you ask them questions and they they realize that the person next to them sees something entirely different in this work than they do so they recognize especially young children oh my they don't see the world the same way i do that is an important thing to recognize and also and also to to realize that other people's views are legitimate and that we should admire them, take them seriously, acknowledge them, even though they might not necessarily be our own views. Also, I think... I think it allows us to make associations of disparate things that we wouldn't ordinarily make. We, we make, obviously, the first associations we make with a work of art is to our own life and how it impacts our own life or how our own life is like this work of art. But then we take the next step in cognitive development and we recognize how this may pertain to someone else's life to to look at one thing and see another isn't that what creativity is looking at one thing and yet seeing another so looking beyond the mark of just what is in front of you on that canvas
0: yeah and i i really love that sense you mentioned that kind of constructivist thinking paradigm which is is definitely the paradigm of education that I subscribe to, because I think that really is about what we're doing, particularly when we talk about children's literacy and the literacy activities they engage is what we're really trying to do here is construct our world. And art is so much a part of that. It allows us to see all of these things in a broader perspective and allows us to question things in a way oftentimes that text or printed material can't because art is taking us to that visual connection that we have it is and certainly visual awareness visual
3: acuity is is important in this culture art allows us to perceive the fine details of things to peel back those layers to come to a, a deeper a greater understanding of it and it's so fun for me as an educator to be in a gallery and watch that aha moment of a child or an adult or a university student who sees something that they've never seen before. And I think that's an important point, too. Whatever inroad we can gain to encourage people to love the arts, however that happens, whether it's because your child likes baseball and so you Google Arts in Baseball, and look at some wonderful artist who loves to show baseball players. If that is your inroad with your child to enjoy the arts, by all means, go for it. Or Degas Ballerinas, well, show your little girl who's taking ballet those pictures. Or your little boy, for that matter. I don't want to to dis- discount that as well. Boys should do ballet, Absol- too. We absolutely. need more men in ballet. I'm so, all for all, that. All those listeners out there who have
0: young boys, more boys in ballet. You got it. <laughs> that, it's a very important thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll promote that on the show. Absolutely. More boys in ballet. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a good thing. I, you know, I really think that that's a wonderful way to look at it because sometimes I think we forget how interconnected these things are. I think our our schooling and the way we've constructed schooling and the way we've constructed life is we try to compartmentalize these things. But particularly brain research lately has been showing how interconnected these things are and that you know music builds on fine art and fine art builds on dance and dance builds on drama and and all of that just builds on us being able to be cognitively better at social skills and be able to engage in all of these things. So there really is that interconnectivity that we need to to remember is part of this whole experience. Absolutely. You know, when polling our Evening for
3: Educators educators, we asked specifically, what would you like to see more of? And they always say, more geography, more mathematics, more science and we are trying to find ways at the museum to incorporate all of the core curriculum into the museum and there in, into the exhibitions and there are ways of doing it and we found those ways that's a discussion for another day I, I do know believe. again again
0: I like to ask these big unanswerable <laughs> questions on my show and so you know my listeners will understand that but it it really is this wonderful sense I think sometimes we, is particularly when we talk about schooling, we get this sense of if we're spending time on reading, we can't spend time on other things. Or if we're spending time on math, we can't spend time on this other things. But the reality is the more we integrate it, the better all of those things do. I mean, there's been really great studies that show that children that spend time drawing and producing art are better readers even when they're not looking at text this is not looking at text at all they're just drawing and painting and that type of thing their reading automatically becomes better because they've got that spatial sense the idea of where things fall on the page they see how things integrate better and so that act of making art makes better readers. I
3: think there are pathways in the brain that are just opened up with that creative endeavor. Or think of the, think of the high correlation between music and mathematics, and, and how so many musicians are also mathematically inclined. What is music but numbers being made audible? Uh, it, they, they, they're all intertwined. Or you look at the golden mean, for example, in art, and that, that two-thirds, one-third ratio that is that aesthetic beauty that we so enjoy and appreciate as human beings. Again, a mathematical Pythagorean
0: principle that 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 is fully connected with the visual arts. And that fundamentally just shows us a different way to think about all of this stuff that it really is much more integrated than sometimes we give it credit for. and and building on that with our kids is a great way to build, All kinds of skills. Indeed it is. Thank you so much, Linda, for opening our perspectives today. Thank you for having me.
2: That was art educator Linda Palma of the BYU Museum of Art, talking with Rachel Wadham about the importance of art in your child's life. Now, on Worlds Awaiting, we finish the show with two charming poems read by the late Welsh poet, Leslie Norris, from his book, Norris's Ark.
4: I'm going to read the poem's that come from my book called Norris's Ark. And it's called Norris's Ark because I'm Leslie Norris and I wrote the poems and they're all about animals or people and so it's an ark. The first poem is called Small Frogs. We climbed to the pond. I and my cousin... "'and frogs by the swarm and bundle and dozen "'came bustling down the cold, dark hill. "'So many frogs we both stood still. "'Each black frog was spider small, "'small as clover, as a fingernail, "'small as raindrops they hurried through the grass "'as we stood watching the baby frogs pass.' and two little frogs from the pilgrimage, I put in prison in my finger's cage. They were so light, their skin so cool, I could not feel them there at all, but watched them sitting on my hand, two alive creatures of water and land, their legs no longer than a drawing-pin, their wide mouths drinking the warm air in, their skin like paper, their tiny paws, the brilliant particles of their eyes, and put them down, and watched them go, all knowing something we can't know. They'd lived in water. They'd grown four legs. What a world we live in. For boys and frogs. And now this is a poem about an animal which both swims and walks. It's a hippopotamus, of course. In burning Africa, if the day is hot... And the sun looks down with a golden frown. I don't care a jot if it's hot or not. For I am a hippopot, a hippopotamus. There's quite a lot of us. And we swim in the cool of a deep green pool underwater. Or we gracefully float. Like a slow, fat boat on the water, and it's comforting that for a fat hippopot, the cool water. But when it grows dark and the moon comes out, we call to each other a warning shout, Time to go! And we rub ourselves down with our towels, mine's brown, and we put on our pants very slow and our coats, and our hats, and we go, we all of us go, back to town.
2: The voice of the late Leslie Norris, formerly Poet of Wales, reading some of his works from Norris's Ark. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting, Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.